everybody. Happy Monday. It is the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590. The Fan, I am Ben Ennis. Text line is open all program long. You can reach us at 590-590. Now, one of the hardest things about analyzing baseball is that the sample is so big, it's so massive. It's like 100 games still to play uh, that the best teams in baseball can look like the worst team in baseball over a two-week stretch, and the worst teams, conversely, can obviously look like the best teams in baseball, other than the Oakland A's. They will always, every single day, look like the worst team in baseball. It's true for the other 29 teams, though, in Major League Baseball. So Blue Jays complete a three-game sweep of the Mets, find themselves now on a four-game winning streak, and only two and a half games back of the Yankees for the final wild-card spot, a Yankees team that had a tremendous, tremendous month of May. All right. So the Blue Jays good now? Are they still bad? Somewhere in between? Here's what I would say. I would say they're good enough, as in to make the playoffs in the American League, and I know that looks like a, a, a tall task right now, but I would say that they are good enough to make the playoffs, but not good enough compared to the expectations that they rightly had going into this season. They can make the playoffs because of the less... Unbal or the less unbalanced schedule. Blue Jays six and fifteen against the American League East. They are twenty-seven and twelve against everybody else. Like it really does seem like there's a lot of jetsam and floatsam around Major League Baseball outside of this division. That includes a team with a payroll approaching four hundred million dollars in Queens, which we will talk about uh, later on in this program with Jesse Rogers. Uh, but right now, we're going to talk to your friend and mine, Shy DVD, as the Blue Jays get set to host the Houston Astros for a four-game set down at Rogers Center tonight. How's it going, Shy? I'm all right. How are you, Ben? I'm all right. So, yeah, um, this, this Blue Jays team is obviously not as bad as it looked over that 11-game stretch where they went 2-9 and nine against American League East foes. They're better when they play worse teams. Now it's three straight series victories, two of them uh, against division leaders in, in both the AL Central and the NL Central, and then a Mets team that's wildly underperformed considering their payroll. Is this the team on paper like now that we have a decent sample again major league baseball takes forever to play out when we, for us to have definitive answers but what you've seen so far is this the blue jays team you expected it to be in 2023 it's an interesting question i i don't know i mean they're they've been a hard team to read a little bit all season long right because they've got they've had these stretches where like okay this is what we expected it to look like. And then they've had these stretches that leave you shaking your head saying, what exactly is happening here? And then there's all the, all these performances that have to either progress or, or regress to the mean in some way, shape or form. And for that reason, I'm not even at a reasonable sample. I mean, we've got two months and change right now of sample to look at. It's, it's a pretty good evaluative tool. Like, okay, this is a good team. I agree with what you said. You're opening that this is a postseason club. And then to some degree, it's which version of itself comes out in the playoffs. Mm -hmm. I, 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 still, I still expect more home runs from this team. Uh, that's something that, to me, I, when you see it, uh, like a game like Sunday, to me, really stuck out where, you know, the home run is the weapon uh, there's the, the late homer, the homer early that helped put together a lead. You expected some more of that instant offense for it to not always be having to string a bunch of hits together. 
which is what it feels like it's been in large measure so far this year. So to me, that suggests that this offense still has more to come. But again, we haven't seen it quite in that way. And, you know, the bullpen has been fine-ish. It feels that like it, it what it's one arm away. Like if, it, if Chad Green is able to come back and, and be himself, like that could be a major boost. But uh, I think we're looking at a playoff team but how good of a playoff team, I'm still not sure yet. Well, that's it. And and expectations, again, we, I expected this team to look like one of the best teams in baseball, if not the best team in baseball. Lots of people pick this team to win the World Series, which still may happen because you get to October and it's not a total crapshoot, but like, look at the way the Phillies played for the majority of last season, found themselves in the World Series, right? Because they, they, they went to a two-starter system, essentially, and then, you know, that they, they had uh, some high-level um, relief arms that that they were able to to to, to throw out in high-leverage um, situations throughout the course of the playoffs. So if the Blue Jays get there, yeah, they could win a World Series. Uh, and I know that's that's all that matters, and it should be, I guess, all that matters. But what I can judge right now is what my expectations were. Again, I expected to daily turn on Sportsnet and see a baseball team that looked like the best in the world. And I guess you would in April, they looked that way for a, a good portion of time. And it, I, I guess we shouldn't forget that, right? Like let's go back to that Anaheim series and the way they were able to, to come back and score um, and, and take three to four in that series. That's still in them. But I would just say that, that there's a long and growing sample of me looking at this team and saying it's good, but not great. Is that fair? I, you know, I don't think it's this team has peaked. Just, I don't think this team has played its best over an extended period. I, I think that's fair to say. But Vladimir Guerrero Jr. goes on a tear for a month and a half. Yeah. And Alec Manoa starts pitching closer to what he was uh, or what he's been throughout his career. And then how different do things look all of a sudden? Very. And, and that's that's part of why I think that it's, you know, it's so hard in baseball to just make judgments, right? Because there's still all this performance that you can project out and say, okay, this team still has ample time and ample talent to to put it all together and to take the next step. And, you know, the George Springer has started coming around quite obviously in the last little while, but, you know, the bulk of his performance is still to come too. Uh, you know, the, the, you just look around, there's still guys who are going to be better than what they've been to this point. Mm. So they can still certainly be that. And the, the thing that also sticks out a little bit, and maybe this distorts the view a little bit, but, you know, you think about the record against the American League East, and it, it stands as such an outlier, but the American League East is just so much better than the rest of baseball. I mean, yeah. It, Houston Astros aside, yeah. you know the best teams in baseball are in the American all are all in the American League East, mm-hmm. and so I'm not sure whether whether that's distorting the view a little bit. There's some small sample size randomness, you know, in a bunch of those games. Uh, you know, the, the you think about the sweep at Fenway, the series against Baltimore, the series, uh, the most recent series against the Yankees in Toronto. There are a bunch of games in that stretch that it's one hit or one pitch of difference, and all of a sudden that record is closer to 500 or maybe a tick over 500. It's not like the gap is that massive uh, from a play perspective as opposed to a record perspective. And so 
I feel like there's certainly some emotion in the moment, some recency bias in, in maybe some of the evaluations, uh, some of the discussions, some of the points you're making. Uh, but I, I do feel there's still more in there, but it hasn't come out yet. Yeah, and no greater example of how quickly perceptions can change exists in the form of Brandon Belt, right? <laughs> like that guy looked like he was done, that it was sunk cost and that he would never again be a playable uh, offensive contributor in Major League Baseball through the first couple of weeks he was striking out. at. I, I, I'll have to check this, but I, I, it felt like a 95% rate. Um, the, the strikeout rate is still extremely high. It's 37% for, for Brandon Belt, but like well above average hitter. I mean, the, the plate approach has been, I guess you could say it, it, it's been pretty consistent all season long. He's also getting quite lucky on balls in play. I, I don't think he put a single ball in play yesterday, actually, because he had the home run and the four strikeouts. Um, but yeah, the, his BABIP is, is 444 this season. I mean, what is now the expectation for, for Brandon Belt, who is, I think, solidified in, in the four-hole against right-handed pitchers for this Blue Jays team? Yeah, great question. And look, Brandon Belt uh, was understandably, to some extent, getting off to a slow start when you think about him coming off major knee surgery and then having uh, spent an off-season recovering and then a spring that was very much tailored to ensure that his knee uh, didn't absorb too much pressure uh, right away. And so he was going to need some more runway. Uh, the thing is, you know, the strikeouts were obviously a glaring concern. I believe the 95% strikeout ratio you mentioned, I, I think it might be a bit hyperbolic. But look, <laughs> he's been a, a high strikeout guy his whole career. Uh, even during his good years in San Francisco. It's part of what you're, you're buying in there. And so the, the on-base, he's always done that. The hits, you've always done that. Uh, I, I saw some potential maybe for a bit more power than we've seen to this point. And he's hit a lot of doubles, but uh, it was just his third homer yesterday. And in an ideal world, there's a little bit more pop, uh, a little bit more home run power in that four spot. But the fact that he's been productive uh, has been really important for the Blue Jays lineup because they needed him. They needed someone to help replace some of the lost offense of Teoscar Hernandez. And I know Teoscar Hernandez isn't having uh, a typical season for him, but that was a threat that the other teams had to manage against. And you needed Vladimir Guerrero Jr. needs someone who's a bit of a threat behind him. And I think Brandon Belt has at least made teams think at this point about the perils of pitching around them, knowing that Brandon Bell could do some damage in the four spot. Yeah. Hitting home runs would, uh, would greatly improve his, uh, his value because uh, yeah, the walks are, are nice, but yeah, just like Alejandro Kirk, it's, it's not so great when you are a liability on the base pass. It's, it's much easier when you hit them over the fence, which is part of his skill set as well. Just hadn't seen it uh, enough this season, but maybe yesterday is a sign of things to come. Maybe a sign of things to come for Vlad as well. Um, who uh, hits a home run off a pitcher as well. Um, so good for him. You mentioned that, that the bullpen's kind of streaky. And, and I mean, this is the nature of bullpens that, you know, you think you have an idea of who's going to be good, who's going to be bad, and who's going to have certain roles. And then, you know, it's, it's such a small sample position being a relief pitcher. And guys do come out of nowhere and, and turn into great relief pitchers. And guys go from great relief pitchers to unplayably bad year over year over year. So... I mean, the idea that Trevor Richards and, well, certainly not Nate Pearson would be thrown into high leverage at this point in the season shouldn't shock anyone. Um, I wonder, though, with the Nate Pearson appearance yesterday with a couple of solo home runs 
on on back-to-back days like is he now entrenched in in that that role right behind Eric Swanson how do you think those guys are going to be utilized here this this coming week well I think that's still shaking itself out a little bit but Nate Pearson has the skill set for that role and for more and it's hard you've got like this triple digit velocity monster uh, with two good breaking balls that you can throw out there that's that's sort of the logical spot but I think one thing that's worth keeping in mind is that Nate Pearson's still learning how to do this right this is his first extended period in in this role where he's had to get the had to do it a, a big league stage big league schedule uh, all that stuff and he needs some runway so you, I'm not I, I don't think you necessarily have to be overly cautious but there needs to be some recognition which I think the Blue Jays are very much cognizant of and 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 recognize so he will get those opportunities because the skill set plays uh, but you know right now he's also better than most of the other options you have, which is one of the reasons he's there, right? Yeah. You, you earn trust by how you pitch. And if you look at the, the circle of trust right now and who are the guys getting the ball in the most important spots, uh, it's pretty clear that the Blue Jays want to centralize that in Romano and Swanson and Pearson and Meza, and Trevor Richards is pushing into that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Jimmy Garcia has to work his way back to that. I think the Blue Jays would love for him uh, to to get back to that. They're going to, if he pitches well, he's going to get those types of opportunities back because, again, he's got that pedigree, he's he's done it, and just the raw ability, his stuff plays in that role. And so you think that if Jimmy Garcia can find his way back into form, and again, if Chad Green ends up coming around at some point, then that bullpen starts really looking shut down. I think that's where it really takes a leap forward. Yeah, I'm 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 less certain about that than I am about maybe this rotation becoming this team's biggest strength. Right, like as it stands right now, three fifths of the rotation looks pretty good, as we would have expected going into the season. Except um, we would have said that was Alec Manoa and not Jose Barrios, although. You know, you look at the length and breadth of uh, Jose Barrios' career and the seven-year extension and the trade that was consummated to acquire him. Yeah, no, this is the expectation. But he looks all the way back to being Jose Barrios, which is a pretty good pitcher. Like, maybe not the ace of a staff and not somebody you want starting game one of a postseason series, but that's fine. That's what they paid for. And he looks like that. Uh, Kevin Gossman looks like Kevin Gossman. Chris Bassett, people sleep on the fact that he's been a Cy Young candidate before because it's, you know, you, you think of him as being like a trick pitcher that he has eight different pitches. No, he's like really, really good. And he's been really, really great, really, save for the first uh, start he had as a Blue Jay. Which brings me to tonight's starter, right? Um, and the slider last couple of starts has, has, has played up for Manoa, which is good. But the walk rate is still crazy high. And man, seeing him post game after his last start was like, was kind of almost like devastating in, in a way, shy. And and the first time we've really seen the super confident facade broken for Alec Manoa. What, where are you on the importance of tonight's start for him? Yeah, for sure. It was, it, you had, you clearly felt for the guy because you got a sense of how much he cares and how much it bothers him that he's not doing it for his teammates right now. And, and, I thought there was uh, a lot of substance behind there that 
you understand just just how much how hard this how hard this is and uh, how invested he is as a person and what he's trying to do and you know like I looked at that last start and it wasn't great it was a slog he kept the game under wraps which was important uh, it helped that the it was again it was the Brewers and not a better hitting club uh, that certainly was a contributor but you look at I look at it as a bit of a process for him now, right? Where early in the season you thought, okay, he's going to fix one or two things, and it's just going to be he's going to snap back right into into being the guy that he's been. But at this point, it, it what it might be a bit more of a, a steady build where mm. it's you know getting more consistency with that slider and then establishing and or reestablishing confidence in that or the type of confidence he had in it last year. And then, and then it's building up that, the fastball location uh, on both fastballs and being able to, to use those the way that he had in the past and, you know, slowly finding ways to maybe nudge that velocity up the, the tick that he's lost. And, you know, that whole package together ends up bringing him back to who he's been. So I, I think in, in a sense, he and Barrios have almost sort of switched roles this mm-hmm. year where, you know, last year Barrios's progression was sort of a moving target and Blue Jays were constantly trying different things with him. And it seems like it's, that's Alec Manoa a little bit right now. Uh, but you know, again, the pedigree is there. He's known nothing but success throughout his career. Uh, you, you, you believe it, you believe that he has the opportunity to find it and just has to, you know, just run through that process and you know find the identify the right part that he needs to work on. Uh, before we let you go, we are talking to Shai Dabidi, author of the Big Fifty Toronto Blue Jays. Count down the uh, the Big Fifty plays uh, in uh, Toronto Blue Jays uh, history. And I was I was you know tweeting a little bit about Luis Arise's uh, start to the season that he's hitting three ninety two, which obviously leads uh, Major League Baseball and and recalling. John Allroods uh 1993 season in which he was hitting 400 into August which is a long time to be hitting 400 and then he hit a paltry 290 the rest of the way hit 360 for the season but no unbelievable unbelievable uh start to his season in 1993 what do you remember about John Allroods start to that that 93 season and how impossible it is to keep your your batting average that high that deep into the season Yeah I think the thing that really stuck out then uh, and, you know, it certainly wasn't, uh, it was still uh, young-ish at that point, so it wasn't, uh, it was, wasn't a super refined view, but it just, you understood then how bananas it was to hit 400, and he made it seem like it would could really actually happen, Yeah. right? I mean, you get to that point in August, it's almost like, okay, you've done the vast majority at this point. Yeah, this gets harder when everybody's tired and all that, but the swing was so good. The approach was so good. The, 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 the fact that he was just finding green, like being part of the lineup too. I mean, with that, uh, with the Molitor and Alomar finishing two, three in the batting race behind him, mm-hmm. like there was always traffic around him. So it was always hitting in good spots too, with good opportunity with pressure on the pitcher. It, it just, it seemed realistic. And to that point, it it never even seemed remotely likely that someone would get near that. You know, it's how you think about kind of like George Brett's 390 in 1980, whatever, 1980, 81, you know, that kind of being sort of the, the benchmark at that point in time. 
And the fact that he made a legitimate run at it is just really what kind of sticks out. Yeah, and uh, Luis Arise is one of the most fun players in all of Major League Baseball. It's not going to happen for him either because he doesn't walk enough. And, like, go back to Ted Williams, 1941. Guy had, like, a ridiculous, a ridiculously high walk rate because you you just you can't have that many at-bats and hit 400. It's just, it's not, I don't think it's physically possible because your batting average on pulse at play needs to be ridiculously high. But congrats to him, uh, 392, even at this point in the season, insanely, insanely high. Uh, Shy, enjoy the game tonight. I appreciate it. Have a good one. You too. There's Shai Davidi, Sportsnet, Sportsnet.ca, down at the ballpark, getting set for Blue Jays and the Houston Astros, first of four, down at uh, Rogers Center tonight. Blue Jays have also played the fewest home games in the American League East, okay? So you want, you want some more fuel for the Blue Jays regressing back upwards pile? It's one. Yeah, maybe the offense can be a little better. Although, honestly, the more I see this offense, it's good. Like, it's above average, but it's hard to me, hard for me to imagine it being like a top three offense like it was a season ago. be fine, and they're going to have better runners in scoring position luck, but it's not some dominant brute force, you know, and speaking of 93, it's not going to look anything like 93, I don't think. It could be good enough, and there's a couple of above average hitters at the top of this lineup, but I don't think Matt Chapman was the guy that we saw in April. May would uh, lead us to that conclusion. I think he's like somewhere in... In the middle, like an above-average offensive player, but not a, a world beater. I think Bo Bichette is a world beater, but that's it. And like I think Vlad can be hot and cold. I think the, the true reason to believe in this team would be, like I said, that they have potentially four well-above-average starters in the rotation, which will help you during the regular season. Unless two of those guys... I mean, one guy can be ace-level stuff. Another, Unless another guy... Like, maybe Chris Bassett is this guy. Unless another guy joins Kevin Gossman as ace-level stuff, it hurts you a bit in the postseason. You need, like, two top-of-the-rotation starters, which the Blue Jays seem to have going into the postseason last year with Gossman and Alec Manoa. But if they can get Alec Manoa back to some reasonable facsimile of the guy that we saw his first two years in the major leagues, there's not too many teams that can throw four starters at you that can do that. And then, you know, Yusei Kikuchi throwing upper 90s from the left side. Now, can they stay healthy the rest of the season? I guess that's a question, but you look at the track records of all these guys. I mean, that's part of the reason why Barrios was acquired and signed to a seven-year extension, partly because he's Mr. Consistency as far as the ERA year over year, but it's also because the guy's never in his entire career ended up on the IL. Alec Manoa just looks like a guy who's never, ever going to break down. Although he also looked like a guy that would never, ever lose confidence. And that's, that's the one thing that really is throwing me off. Because he was almost like stubbornly confident, right? Like if you, it, any normal person, even with the two years that he had to get his feet wet in the major leagues of baseball, if you had the start that he had as far as the lack of command, the number of walks, the embarrassing outings, any normal person would have lost or at least appeared to have lost some confidence publicly well before he did. But it took until his last start until we really, really did see that, yeah, this is a guy that is having some doubts about himself. And why wouldn't he? The thing is, most Major League Baseball players have that happen to them before they get to the bright lights of the Major Leagues. He's just been so good, so consistent, played four years of college, that... He's, there's just been no reason to keep him from the major leagues. And unfortunately for him, 
yeah, the little bump of the road is happening to the major leagues. There are good signs, though. The slider, like I said, is playing up uh, a little bit in his last couple of uh, starts. Brandon Belak gets the start for the Houston Astros. I mean, that's a, another bonus. Blue Jays get the bottom third of the Astros rotation before Christian Javier starts the final game of this series. Game one of four tonight from Rogers Center. When we come back, also tonight, game two of the Stanley Cup final as the Vegas Golden Knights come back in game one, albeit just from a one-goal deficit, um, but come back to beat the Florida Panthers, take game one, game two tonight from Vegas. We'll talk to David Amber, Hockey Night in Canada, as the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. The best Blue Jays show out there, period. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Drive Time Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Again, the text line's open, 590-590. Going to get to your text after the 4 o'clock hour. Uh, we got the Vegas Golden Knights taking game one over the Florida Panthers, three wins away from lifting the Stanley Cup in year six of their existence. They snapped the Panthers' eight-game road winning streak. Sergei Bobrovsky, human. When you put human beings in front of him, uh, gives up more than three goals for the first time since game six against the Bruins. It is hockey weather tonight in Vegas. Uh, last check, high of 38 in uh, Nevada for tonight's game two, eight o'clock on Sportsnet. Let's talk to David Amber, Hockey Night in Canada, Sportsnet. He's in uh, Vegas getting ready for this game. How's it going, David? Does it feel like hockey? Let me give you a weather update to start, yeah, Ben. Please. It's currently... It is 12.30 in the afternoon here in Vegas, and it's currently 35 degrees. Beautiful. And in exactly one hour from now, <laughs> I don't know how to – I feel kind of disgusted by this. Elliot Friedman is going to do about the 25-minute walk what? to the arena from our hotel. I don't know what he's trying to prove. <laughs> I don't know what the deal is. There better be a shower there waiting for him because that is – I'm taking an Uber with, with Ron and Kelly and the rest of the gang, but Elliot – you know, Elliot's, I guess, Superman. He's going to try and walk and not melt on his way to the rink. Like, but, I mean, you joke, but, like, seriously, though, why is he doing that? <laughs> I don't know. I really don't. I'll tell you something crazy. In the, in the first game, Craig Simpson, in a full suit, <laughs> walked to the, to the rink. And, and we're in the, we have this change area in the lower bowl, and, you know, we're all putting on our suits. We've been lucky enough for them to, to send our, our sort of business gear um, cart it there so we can actually be a bit more comfortable get to the rink and change there and Simmer walked in and I'll be honest with you his hair looked perfect mm. he wasn't like I would be dripping he was like hey fellas I'm like what are you doing yeah I walked to the rink <laughs> I don't know I can't explain it I really can't explain it but Elliot I'm, I'm more concerned for Elliot Simmer I don't know <laughs> I think he pulled it off Elliot's going to be a puddle, and it's not going to be pleasant. Okay, well, I will be judging his appearance on tonight's broadcast accordingly because, yeah, that that's nuts. 30, 38, you can you can take an, an Uber. Um, yeah, you know what? Now, now that we're talking about Vegas as a hockey city, and, yeah, we're, we're going to see Sunrise as a Stanley Cup final locale as, as well for the second time uh, in its existence. Um, 
the the World Series of Poker is happening right now. I didn't realize it was so, so long. It started like the it starts at the beginning of June, ends it's like a month long event, but it is underway right now in Las Vegas as well. Like how how much does I don't know how much time you've you've spent walking around the strip, uh, David, but like how does it feel like? And you've been to plenty of Stanley Cup finals. Does it feel like a Stanley Cup final there? Yeah, I mean, listen, you're in Las Vegas. Uh, we're walking through the throngs of, of crowd leaving game one to head back to our hotel. We did walk back at night. And you're, you're, it's pedestrian traffic. It's like New Times Square type traffic mm-hmm. uh, walking down the Vegas Strip back to our hotel. And I bet if I were to survey, you know, the first hundred people I ran into and said, hey, you know, do you know who's playing in the Stanley Cup final? Are you here for the Stanley Cup final? Do you know what the Stanley Cup final even is? There's a good chance the large majority might not have known that. I will tell you it's a loud and boisterous crowd within the arena and in the surrounding areas. They've done a great job tailgating and making it fun and exciting. But let's face facts. I mean, Vegas is a very big tourist destination. The large majority of people here aren't really vibing necessarily with the Stanley Cup final. But one thing I'll say is I've run into people from uh, B.C., Alberta, Manitoba, Ontario. A lot of Canadians have said, hey, I'm here. I wanted to catch a Stanley Cup final game, and no Canadian teams are in yet again. Mm-hmm. And it's cheaper and more affordable for me to get to a Stanley Cup final game here in Vegas and obviously make a whole weekend out of it than it would be, you know, in their home cities in Calgary, Edmonton, et cetera. So it's kind of cool. It really is it's not, you know, your traditional hockey market in that sense, but in a way it works. It's just found a way to be successful both on and off the ice here in Vegas. Yeah, and honestly, like I, I want to be the person that that would say if I was a National Hockey League player, I would decide, I would want to play in a traditional hockey market, and I would want to play for the Toronto Maple Leafs. And there's a part of me that certainly would. But man, the appeal of 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 living in a level of anonymity, like you said, there's some hardcores, and certainly the people that are showing up to the game are are super into it. But like the Matthew Kachuk thing, like, do you think he has any regrets having it play out the way it did? And I, I, I know Vegas sunrise is not Vegas, but it is like, he gets to live. Uh, he gets to walk to the, to the, the rink and flip flops and, and make the same amount of money and you know, no state tax as well. And, and, and you know what? He gets to play on a winning team. It really, like if there's one takeaway for me outside of the actual hockey that's being played between these two teams is that, you want to talk about a cap league and having an advantage um, that other teams don't when when everybody can only spend a certain amount? It's living in locale, or it's, it's having a franchise in a locale that, that players are, like, interested in playing in. I think both these teams have that. Ben, this is becoming a bigger and bigger conversation piece. I mean, when you look at the final four Stanley Cup uh, finalists, you know, the, the Western and Eastern Conference finalists this year, the most northern city is Las Vegas. I mean, let that sink in, right? You look at Dallas, no tax. Florida, no tax. Well, I should say Texas, but Dallas is in Texas, no tax. Florida, no tax. Uh, Vegas, no tax. You're right. Uh, it's a huge advantage. And there's something, you know, if I'm Marty Walsh, if I'm the PA, and certainly if I'm some of these Canadian owners, uh, I'm lobbying hard to Gary Bettman and, and the other owners to say, you know, and I, I know this is a pie-in-the-sky hard sell, but what if you had one player that was capped exempt? You know, kind of like a franchise tag you see in, in football and, and we've seen it in other, uh, other sports. And where, you know, you can have Austin Matthews at $15 million. He doesn't count against the cap or Connor McDavid or whomever. And every, every team would be at the same interest, but it would probably be a, a greater help to the Canadian markets, certainly the ones who spend up to the cap, knowing that they're highly taxed, knowing the climate, knowing some of the players don't want to play in Canada for a number of different reasons. You mentioned anonymity, et cetera. 
it might just level the playing field. Uh, I don't think it's been 30 years without a cup in Canada specifically because of state-free taxes. There's a number of number of reasons why the cup hasn't been in Canada for so long. But at this point of, uh, of time, Matthew Kachuk, Kachuk could sign for $9.5 million in Florida or, or $10 million, whatever he signed for. I, I have to take a look. I think it's $9.5 million. And that would cost Calgary, you know, to keep them sort of $11 million, mm-hmm. right? And yep. it's a hard cap. Those dollars add up. You know, you don't have to look any further than Tampa Bay or Kucherov, Hedman, Vasilevsky, Stamkos come in at like $10 million cheaper than the core four in Toronto. That's not nothing. That's Andre Palat. That's Alex Kalorn. You know, that's, good. Uh, you know, Barkley Goodrow. That's a, a bunch of serviceable supporting cast guys that can lead you to a Stanley Cup. So it, it is difficult and, and maybe something where you do have a cap-exempt player on every team. Uh, that could help level the playing field a little bit. Yeah, and I guess the Leafs' best shot that they have, well, is one, the prestige, quote-unquote, of, of being a Toronto Maple Leaf, and two, it's like the things that are not under the purview of the salary cap, right, like facilities and, and uh, you know, uh, support staff and, and that type of stuff. But, man, yeah, I again, we're proud Canadians. David, I don't want to speak mm. for you, but <laughs> given the choice of – you know, spending a winter in Canada or in Las Vegas, <laughs> I might take the second one. Yeah, again. Well, listen, you asked about Matthew Kachuk and does he have any regrets? He certainly does not have any regrets. In fact, no. he issued five teams he'd be accepting a trade to, is what he, you know, kind of forced Brad Trey Living into here are the five markets. I can tell you the markets weren't Edmonton, Winnipeg, et cetera. Like the markets <laughs> were warm, locale, American based markets. You know, maybe tax-free states had something to do with it as well. I don't know the specifics of the five teams. I understand Vegas was one of them, and we know Florida was one of them. So there you go. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, same with, you know, Alex Petrangelo chose Vegas yep. as the destination. Like, it, it's, it is a place to play. And here, here's what I would say, and I think most hockey players, certainly the Canadian ones, would agree with this. There's probably nothing comparable to winning in right. a Canadian market. But if you're not going to win in a Canadian market, you might as well be in a U.S. market where the, the heat is off, the pressure is off. I mean, Johnny Gaudreau went to a place where he can just settle in. And, and you know, maybe with Mike Babcock, it'll be a different yeah. different story. But he certainly could <laughs> settle in, essentially, and, and live his life and make his money and, and hopefully do well on the ice. But if he doesn't, it's not the end of the world. Whereas in Calgary, there's such a, an appetite and such a passion for the game. You live it 24-7. Yep. And that's not for everyone. No, it's not. And it, w- it would be nice to remind people of what it's like uh, when a-, a Canadian market wins a Stanley Cup. So, the, yeah, yeah, there, there can be that selling point. But now it's like such a distant memory. Uh, we don't have a lot of uh, prime NHLers who were alive uh, in 1993. Okay, uh, let's get to the hockey on the ice. Can't tell you, I, I thought Aiden Hill would be, what, like the fifth favorite to win the, the Conn Smythe Trophy as-, as we're now potentially only three games away from the conclusion of the Stanley Cup final. Uh, his 938 save percentage, uh, save percentage leads the playoffs. He's on his third team. He's 27 years old. I mean, he makes the save of the playoffs on Nick Cousins to to, to keep it 1-1 in game uh-huh. one. I mean, how? I mean, is this just the the nature of of the the position? The guys can come out of nowhere and do this. Like, what do you make of the Aiden Hill story? Well, I think it has to do with a lot of what's between Aiden Hill's ears. Um, physically, obviously, he's he's incredible, but. It's his ability to, you know, withstand the, the pressure in the moment. I sat down with him on the eve of the Stanley Cup final. It was media day, and I had a 10-minute sit-down with him. And during that sit-down, you know, a big conversation piece, I said, look, the Oilers fans were all excited knowing you were coming into the series when Brassois got hurt, knowing you had zero playoff experience. They were like, 
you know, rubbing their hands together. Why wasn't that moment too big for you? And he kind of looked at me, he looked at me, kind of shrugged and so I was like, I know how I play. I'm confident. Hmm. Um, you know, he has swagger. I, I asked Mark Stone, I said, give me one word to describe Aiden Hill. And he said, confident. And then he, then he paused. He said, actually, no, it's swagger. And I said, really? He goes, yeah, the guy's just, he's unflappable. So you don't know what's between a guy's ears until he got thrust into that sort of situation. And for Aiden Hill, the moment hasn't been too big. And he's really showcased his ability. And when you talk about the con Smythe, I agree with you 100%. I mean, listen, if Florida comes back, wins this series, which could very well happen, Kachuk, Bobrovsky, they're very much the con Smythe favorites. If Vegas goes on and wins this series in four or five games and Aiden Hill keeps playing the way he's playing, you know, Aiden Hill, Jack Eichel, Jonathan Marchessault, Alex Petrangelo, you know, those four guys essentially would be the front runners. And, and you'd have to say right now, as it stands, Aiden Hill might be the front runner, which would be just shocking. I'd love to, to see the Vegas books of what Aiden Hill to win the cons might, you know, before the Stanley Cup uh, playoffs began. It, it might not, it might have been not on the board, quite yeah. frankly. So it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I would like somebody to show me their ticket if they claim to have <laughs> a bet on Aiden Hill to win the Conn Smythe before the playoffs. Um, so, yeah, Sergei Bobrovsky has, I mean, not a stinker in game one, but like I said, it, it was the first time since game six against the uh, Boston Bruins in a game they actually won 7-5 that he had given up more than three goals in a hockey mm-hmm. game. And now this report that the Vegas uh, goaltending coach, uh, Sean Burke, had some some interesting advice for the the mm-hmm. Vegas shooters against Bobrovsky. Did they figure something out? Well, that's, there's a lot of chatter, sort of. If you look at the White Cloud goal, which was the game winner, you look at the Shea Theodore goal, both of them were, were quite, um, you know, comparable, where you're, you're skating through, you're skating sort of in a lateral motion, you're making the goalie move a little bit in his net, and then instead of winding up for a big slap shot where you can get positioned and ready and, you know, be in, in, the, in the right angle of, you know, you're, you're getting him a bit off balance. And certainly, if you watch the reaction from Bobrovsky on the, on the white cloud goal, he's really upset. Yeah, there was a screen in front both times. But he, he kind of right, ahead, right away put his head down like, man, I should have had that one. And he probably should have. And the Bobrovsky from the Leaf series, the Bobrovsky from the Carolina series, would have had that one. So if nothing else, he showed he's back to being human. Um, but I wouldn't say he played poorly, and I wouldn't say he was the reason um, Florida lost. I mean, they were certainly running around trying to throw – Vegas off their game. They were trying to agitate them. They were getting in, you know, Aiden Hill's face. And, and, and Vegas was just having none of it. You know, we're going to talk today in our pregame show about Nicholas Haig. And the fact he's almost like Kachuk. Like, he can be this great pest. He's mm. talking. He's doing all sorts of stuff. But he doesn't find his way into the penalty box. <laughs> right? We were, I mean, Ben, you remember round two? Yeah. It was, it was Darnell Nurse who got suspended because Haig basically goaded him into to chasing him down and taking an a, a, a untimely, you know, fight with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, third round, last round, Max Domi slashing and slashing, gets thrown out of the game, you know, gets a 10-minute misconduct. Uh, and, and then he took three or four punches to the face. After whistles and scrums, he didn't flinch. Didn't flinch. And meanwhile, you know, uh, Florida racked up 46 minutes in penalties and Vegas scored two power play goals, and here we are. So um, it, there's a lot of storylines there. Bobrovsky wasn't the reason Florida lost game one, but certainly I, I think if nothing else, it gave Vegas some confidence that maybe, just maybe, you know, the mojo isn't mm. exactly where it was a round ago. Yeah, and, and you know, you can point to the penalty minutes, uh, 46 to 18, yeah, you know, that, that, that Florida took the most penalty minutes. I mean, as they want to do all postseason, like that's their deal. Uh, and a lot of those penalty minutes did come in the, in the scrum when the, the game was essentially over and, and Matthew Kachuk ends up taking a misconduct. But, yeah, the idea of, of the Panthers becoming more disciplined seems unlikely, I think, David. 
Yeah, I mean, this has their, been their M.O., get under the other team's skin, physically dominate them, intimidate them at times, et cetera. And it worked, it worked incredibly well to varying degrees in all three series. And they had, you know, superlative goaltending to boot and timely, and timely scoring, right, 6-0 and in overtime, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it could be such a different narrative if they didn't have some of this overtime magic. We might be sitting here talking about a different team, right, mm-hmm. knowing they knocked off Boston in games five and seven with their season on the line in overtime. Think about how different, you know, right now we could be in a very – I could be sitting in Boston right now in a hotel room, you know, quite frankly. So, um, yeah, I, I, again, I don't put that on Bobrovsky, and I do think discipline is going to be a key. Uh, and one thing is Florida's power play is going to have to be good because what we've seen throughout these playoffs is the Golden Knights, five-on-five, five, are easily, easily the most dominant team we've seen, right? They're plus 27 five-on-five five in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Uh, so if you're going to play them five on five, they have an incredible uh, defensive, uh, you know, fortitude in front of, of Aiden Hill. They block the most shots of any team. They don't give up a lot. That, that's that's key. So when Florida gets a power play, they're going to have to make the most of it. And in game one, they only, I think, mustered two shots on goal in three power plays. They're going to have to be much better when they get the, the man advantage, and they're going to have to be much more disciplined to stay out of the box themselves. Uh, you mentioned uh, Mike Babcock back in the National Hockey League. Not officially, but yeah, the rumors are that he's going to be the next head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. That's all well and good. Um, not exactly one of the, the glamour positions in all of the National Hockey League. Uh, it's been almost four years since he was fired by the Toronto Maple Leafs. And I know there's contractual stuff, I guess, maybe the play into it. But like, are you surprised? I, and I know the narrative wasn't great when he departed here. And that's kind of part of the deal of of signing up to 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 be a part of the Toronto Maple Leafs is there's a lot of spotlight on you and that can be great when it's going great and not so great when it's not so going so great and it wasn't going mm-hmm. great by the end for Mike Babcock but are you surprised it took so long for him to end up back on a National Hockey League bench? Um, yes and no. I, I think because he left such a high-profile job um, and the temperature had to go down, right? It wasn't he didn't leave in, in, in the worst of circumstances but he certainly didn't leave in the best of circumstances and uh, I think he wanted to maybe step away a little bit. Teams might have been a little reluctant to pull him right back in on the heels of that. You know, you probably want to take some time to reflect, what do I want to do? You know, what else is there to accomplish if you're Mike Babcock? You've won Stanley Cups. You've won Olympic championships. You, you know, you, you, you're one of, the, you know, one of the best resumes in coaching history. What, what is there left for you to do and prove? Um, I think this actually is a good jump-in spot for him, kind of like Johnny Gautreaux. It's nice and quiet there. Yeah. Uh, you can go about his business. No one's going to, you know, the media scrums aren't going to be 30 and 40 deep like in Toronto. They'll be three or four deep. Um, you're always going to play second fiddle to Ohio State football, et cetera. So uh, it's not a bad spot for him to jump in. And if you look at the lineup, no team suffered through more injuries this year than Columbus. I'm not saying they're a Stanley Cup contender but they certainly will probably have a lot more pieces in place come october uh than they did this year had so many guys down for long stretches of time so he probably feels he's taking over a team that has some good upside he's doing it in a marketplace that makes sense and um it'll be really interesting to see how he and and guys like patrick line and johnny gaudreau can coexist because you know mike babcock by all accounts can grind his players and those are guys who are not known to really enjoy being grinded necessarily. Now, having said that, Johnny Goodrow played under uh, Daryl Sutter. So he has, he has had that in their relationship. A lot of people thought would be incendiary, and it worked out pretty well. So, so maybe, uh, maybe this is exactly what Johnny Goodrow, Patrick Laine, and the Columbus Blue Jackets need. Well, and we'll see if we get a new Bo- Mike Babcock as well, because I know it was only four years ago, but it, it just feels like 
that was almost the start of a sea change in like mentality around NHL head coaches. And you mentioned the Daryl Sutter. He, is, he was fired, right? Like that, that was a spectacular failure in Calgary. And then you got Craig Conroy talking about needing to, to make it more fun, right? We, we just like the, the, the yeah. narrative of being a, a hard ass head coach. It just, I don't know if you can do that anymore, David. You can if you're winning. Yeah. Bruce Cassidy's reputation when he left Boston was was not good. I mean, I don't mean his reputation wasn't good, but the players had maybe had enough of being grinded down. You know, there was this whole, well, Bergeron's going to retire and Krejci's not going to come back from the Czech Republic and or from Czechia. There's whole this whole narrative. Guys didn't want to necessarily hear it anymore. Uh, it, the message had, had started to fade. And, you know, essentially... Um, you know, when you're winning, the message resonates pretty well. You know, what's the old saying with Scotty Bowman? Guys hated him for 364 days of the year, and on the 365th day, they get their Stanley Cup ring, right? Yeah. So, you know, Mike Keenan, we can go on and on and on and on. You know, um, you know, Ken Hitchcock, guys who can really grind players, John Tortorella. When you're losing, the shelf life is much shorter. If the Flames were winning a cup this year, you think Daryl Sutter would be in trouble? And maybe that's, maybe that's a rhetorical question in the sense of they weren't going to win, under his guidance because the guys were so miserable. So maybe it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. One thing I'll say about Mike Babcock, though, Ben, is I, I think he's learned and can adjust. He probably recognizes some of the mistakes he made in maybe misreading what motivates players, what gets them to, to play at their best, what makes them comfortable. And, you know, there's certain things you can do and say to certain players and it doesn't bother them. And, and other players, they have a negative reaction to it. So it's going to be incumbent on him to have a very strong EQ, a very strong read on his team, a very strong read on his leadership group and how far and how he can push them and how he can motivate them. And one thing about Mike Babcock is he's a very smart guy. I don't think he's incapable of evolving and changing. We saw that with Ken Hitchcock later in his career. John Tortorella says he's a different coach than he was when he was in Vancouver and the New York Rangers. So time will tell, but I do think this could be a good fit for them. Yeah, uh, Elliot Friedman will be a different man before he leaves on his 20-minute walk uh, and then after because he'll have lost 20 pounds. So, yeah. He'll be swampy. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, it is impressively, I mean, we're talking African heat out here. I, I went down outside for about 10 minutes, and I was like, good guy. Like, this is, it's next level, man. It is next. I mean, all the dry heat, all that narrative, no, no. It's next level. It is, it's awfully warm here. Okay, well, let's, let's make sure that he makes it then. Uh <laughs> Maybe check in on him. Maybe, you know, take your Uber alongside him as he's walking to the arena because uh, that's nuts, man. Uh, thanks for this, David. Yeah, Ben, anytime. Enjoy the game tonight. We're looking forward to it. And, and one thing I'll say is no one, you know, we're sitting at dinner last night. No one has a read on how this series is going to go. Like for those people who are saying, well, Vegas and four Vegas and five, uh, you know, let's hold our horses here because it's very hard to count either of these teams out. Uh, they've shown it throughout the whole postseason. So we'll see what happens tonight. Yeah, and look pretty even uh, through 40 minutes in game one mm -hmm. over the weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, enjoy the game, man. Thanks. Take care. See ya. There's David Amber in uh, Las Vegas getting set for game two tonight, eight o'clock on Sportsnet. Oakdale Golf and Country Club getting set to host the best golfers in the world this week. This year's RBC Canadian Open. We have tickets to give away to enter. All you have to do is tune into episodes of the Fan Drive Time. Listen for the code word. And then you text the code word to 590-590. Today's code word is Alanis Morissette. Text Alanis Morissette to 590-590 right now to enter for your chance to win. Also back this year. Coincidentally enough, is the RBC Music Concert Series featuring Black Eyed Peas and the aforementioned Alanis Morissette. If you don't win with us, 
Make sure to secure your tickets by visiting rbccanadianopen.ca. Okay. One last thing on the Mike Babcock, and you know what? This this, this ties into the, the market thing in the National Hockey League and how Canadian markets have a disadvantage over some of those Sunbelt markets. Um, yeah, it doesn't matter if you're winning. David's 100% right. If the Calgary Flames had done what everybody expected them to do this year and be one of the best teams in hockey after somehow salvaging the departure of Johnny Goudreau and Matthew Kachuk with a 100-point guy in Jonathan Uberdo, like say he hadn't, you know, dropped off a cliff and and scored 50 fewer points this year. And although it should be said, again, had one more point than the Florida Panthers during the regular season. But yeah, if they had done that, Daryl Sutter would still be employed and this narrative would be irrelevant. But he didn't, and he's gone. And I just don't know if we're ever going to see, one, a situation where a head coach comes in and says, I am the taskmaster ever again. And certainly not when you need to play nice with the players because you do not have the location advantage. And, you know, you say that it's it's great when you're winning and and the passion is a, is a positive. I think most players now see it as a negative. They don't know a world in which a Canadian franchise has won a Stanley Cup. So best of luck to, to Mike Babcock in uh, at Columbus with uh, Johnny Goudreau. We'll see if there's a new leaf being turned over there. All right, when we come back, South Florida's the place to be, apparently. As uh, the Miami Heat... Took game two of the NBA Finals yesterday. The uh, Florida Panthers looking to even the Stanley Cup Finals at one tonight. We'll talk to Greg Cody of the Miami Herald next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Annis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Diving deep into the biggest stories in Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Again, text line is open, 590-590. We will try to get to uh, some of your texts before the bottom of the hour here as it is a bit weird. Sometimes in sports, uh, you see things work in geographical cycles as far as momentum is concerned. And right now, I mean, for a long time, it's New England. And I guess we can't totally discount the New England of, of things uh, because the Bruins had best regular season in the history of the National Hockey League, although they bowed out in the first round, but potentially to the Stanley Cup champions. Um, but right now it's South Florida. Panthers in the Cup final. Miami Heat taking home court advantage away from the Nuggets yesterday, looking to become the first team in NBA history to win the title as an eight seed. They're just the second eight seed to ever make the final. And, okay, you got playoff Jimmy, and they were at the Eastern Conference final a season ago. Um, but Kyle Lowry is like a bit player, and he's making almost 30 million bucks. And it's... Just a cavalcade of undrafted dudes that are getting the job done. Max Struess, Duncan Robinson, what an incredible fourth quarter he put forth yesterday. Gabe Vincent, Caleb Martin, who's battling a bit of a, a flu bug or something right now, was out of the starting lineup yesterday. That this team 
with, granted, one of the great playoff performers of the last half decade in Jimmy Butler at the head of the snake, but made almost entirely out of guys that were overlooked in their draft class in the NBA is unbelievable and maybe gives credence to what Masai Ujiri talked about, one, at the trade deadline, and two, at the end of the Raptors' I was going to say regular season. They did play a play-in tournament game at the end of their season where he talked about one, well, the parody, which I guess plays into this as well, is an eight seed knocked off a couple of MVPs along the way to being in the NBA finals, has a chance to win against a two-time NBA MVP. And two, so much of what makes the, the Heat great, and those players are great and have been great since being passed over in the NBA draft, but not exactly household names, and not exactly with high pedigrees, that so much of what makes this Miami Heat team the Miami Heat is the Heat culture part of it. That there are vibes at play here. And you have to have players that buy in. Jimmy Butler certainly seems like one of those guys. But the head coach, how much is Eric Spolstra being the guy that, that takes the slings and arrows and has to speak for this team and, and, you know, look exasperated when they talk about making Nikola Jokic a scorer in game one yesterday and that being the di- – or in uh, game two yesterday and that being the difference between a win and a loss. That the Raptors might be able to go out there and get a vibes guy and maybe make some roster tweaks and maybe that also involves trading away uh, a bigger-name player and, you know, ending up with uh, Scoot Henderson, number three in the draft. But that, like, maybe a Steve Nash wasn't perfect for the Brooklyn Nets because they actually didn't need a vibes guy. They needed an X's and O's guy because they actually had the talent. But if you don't have the talent, if you have some good players but not great players, and you're looking to squeeze that extra 5% out of it, it is possible with an elite-level head coach. And maybe the Miami Heat are the living embodiment of that. Um, They now have home court advantage as they head back to Miami for uh, game three later on in the week. Uh, As they are not like the the Stanley Cup finals, we got a couple extra days off for travel, which I would imagine benefits the Miami Heat here. Also today, Shams Charania with a tweet, sources... Kyrie Irving has reached out to Lakers star LeBron James in attempts to see if James would come to Dallas. Irving is a free agent this offseason, as we all know. We also know that the Dallas Mavericks own his bird rights, so the idea of re-signing him, um, despite the fact that it didn't work out all that well, and it, you know, they might have been able to make a play-in tournament game if they had actually not rested. Luka Doncic down the stretch, but that was certainly not the goal when he was acquired at the deadline. The the Mavericks have painted themselves into a corner considering what they gave up to go out and get him, considering the ticking clock that is Luka Doncic and perhaps his desire one way or another to uh, stay a Dallas Maverick or decide to leave. Two things on this. One is that Hey, if Kyrie actually wants to hook up with LeBron James, he's a free agent. He can sign for the, the minimum. They can make it work in Los Angeles. 
So what this is is Kyrie leaking this out into the world so that the ball's in LeBron James's court that he can get paid and he can get his uh, his three-headed monster in in Dallas. And two, there's no way this is happening. I mean, there is absolutely no impetus for the Los Angeles Lakers to do this. LeBron James, unlike Kyrie Irving, is not a free agent this offseason. But uh, interesting to, to monitor the situation in Dallas that ended so horrifically last season. All right, as we just saw over the weekend, 300 million bucks does not buy you what it used to. Steve Cohen's Mets find themselves squarely at 500 through 60 games of the season. They're a couple back of the Marlins, who are actually also having half-decent season uh, in South Florida. The uh, Marlins are spending approximately $250 million less on payroll than the Mets this season. Uh, Jesse Rogers joins us now, ESPN baseball reporter, uh, has a story out. MLB is a sport divided by historic payroll disparity. So what's next? How's it going, Jesse? Thanks for doing this. Uh, good afternoon. Good to be with you. All right. So um, it, it, we'll, we'll get to whether this is good or bad um, and, and what to do about it going forward. But it is, I mean, it's, it's hard especially for Blue Jays fans after seeing the Mets for three games and the Blue Jays sweeping them away. And, and you mentioned it in your piece, three of the top four payrolls would be out of the playoffs right now. Three of the bottom four would still be playing. I mean, d does that almost negate any conversation about this being an issue? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Let me, let me tell you the genesis of that article. It started in spring training because last year, payroll and wins and playoff appearances kind of made sense. There were a lot of high-priced clubs that made the postseason, and when you see four 100-win teams and four 100-loss teams and a trend going uh, into the sort of haves and have-nots of the world, like it made sense for me to write something about payroll disparity because as it grows, all the good players are going to end up on, on fewer teams, right? That's kind of what happened this past offseason, super teams were supposedly formed, but the standings don't indicate that. And I think ultimately the conclusion is, is this, that in the short term, anybody can win. And the preferable teams, the preferable teams by executives are the ones you draft and develop and get peak performance out of earlier in their careers for a bunch of reasons. The younger ones can bounce back from injuries. The younger ones are hungry. The younger ones have more ability. Uh, and then all of a sudden, if you try to buy a team, it will win over time. Like, you will have wins over the course of 10 years if you continue to spend on payroll. But it doesn't guarantee you anything in the short term. Because executives, again, will tell you, you know what, buying 30-year-olds at $40 million a year there's all sorts of things that can go wrong, or in the Mets case, 40-year-olds at $40 million a year. So it's kind of an interesting case where money does matter over time, but in a short term, a team that comes out of, the, of a rebuild like Pittsburgh, like Baltimore, like Arizona, they can do some damage even against high-priced teams. Um, isn't that great, though? Like, isn't that, doesn't that set up, like, from a narrative perspective, let me make the case for it, is that you get the big bads, right? Like, you get the Yankees, you get the Mets, you get the Dodgers, you get the Red Sox, that people are, like, they, they're rightfully laughing at those teams when they fail, although you're right. Like, over time, those teams are going to have more success than the teams who don't spend as much. And, and the teams that don't spend as much in one season can win. Like, it's not impossible 
for eh, it's impossible for the A's to win. But that's another story. It's not impossible for like the Pirates to win, right? Or, or make the playoffs and get into the playoffs, and then once you're there, anything can happen. Isn't that isn't that kind of perfect that you have like you have teams that everybody can can bond in rooting against, and you have underdog stories that 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 everybody's not playing on a, on a level playing field is actually kind of beneficial to the sport in a weird way. The answer is yes, and it's working out this year. But it doesn't mean it will work out every year like this. And that's kind of where I point to last year, where you had four 100-loss teams. That's a record. So, And nearly five 100-win teams, which would have been a record. The Yankees, I think, had 99 wins. So, it, it, that's the, the, And that's the point of this. Like, yeah, it, it sounds good now, but let's go a year or two down the road where you know, whether it be Baltimore or Pittsburgh can't hold on to their young players who are about to come become free agents. It's kind of like what the Rays do. They end up trading everybody. The only difference is the Rays keep going because they have such a good developmental system. But most teams, after a small contending window, have to drop back down and sort of recycle and rebuild again. So um, the Dodgers and Yankees and some of the high-priced teams never have to take a step back. Now, it's kudos to them in a lot of ways, but it's also because they just bring in a massive amount of money through all sorts of revenue streams that the smaller markets can't, can't achieve. So I agree with you. It's wonderful to have these, these, these teams in it, but it's, it, I think this is the anomaly. This is more the exception to the rule. Most of the time we're going to see those high price teams in it. And we're going to complain about that as well. And last thing, and this is a big thing in the article, it's, it's in the second half, the Dodgers, the Yankees, the Red Sox, the big markets are now spending on infrastructure and development and analytics like the Rays have done for years, like the Guardians have done for years. So they have caught up to these small markets in terms of spending on ancillary stuff besides payroll. And I I liked what uh, one executive said. At at some point, if the Yankees want to coach for every player, they can afford it, they'll have it, and that'll be their advantage over some of the smaller markets. Well, unless perhaps like instead of because because obviously player salaries has to be collect- collectively bargained. I, I don't want to see a work uh, work stoppage again. That, that stinks. Yeah, uh, I, I'm good with like not doing that. But I mean, you do not have to go through. I mean, I don't think collective bargaining to to say put a cap on how much you can spend not on payroll, like what you're talking about, like maybe on coaches on scouts, on, on development? Like, is, is that a potential next step for Major League Baseball? I think it's something they're looking into, yes, I do. Uh, that at least evens that playing field where, right, you, you can only spend X on equipment, right, certain types of whatever it is. So the big markets don't have an advantage there, even if they have one in payroll. Because remember, the union is allowing the big markets to have the advantage in payroll. They're, they're against a cap, whether it be a floor or a ceiling. So not like the union is against the payroll disparity. You didn't see any quotes in there saying this system isn't working for the players, mm. though I, I suspect if I, if I talk to every guy making a million instead of five million because someone else is making 30, they might have an argument. But this sport is driven by the stars, just like the other sports. So my, my point is um, any argument about putting a, a floor and a cap is going to be thrown away because the stars want unlimited money you know they the agents want to be able to spend what they want the teams to spend whatever they can so anyway um i, I think it's an interesting thing to follow I, I think inherently the idea of somebody spending 350 million on payroll and another team spending 78 or whatever the A's are spending seems wrong like like 
the fact that the Packers can compete in the NFL, it's because of the system they've, they've created. Yeah. The fact that the Pirates can compete is probably because the game of baseball is so um, uh, unpredictable, right? But how long can the Pirates compete is, is the question mark. Every team can jump out of a rebuild for a moment in time, but can they sustain it like the Yankees, Dodgers, and other teams? And, of course, the answer is no. So you point out in the story as well that in 2000 there was a a blue ribbon panel report written about this exact issue, and at at that point it was only you know the gap was only 77 million bucks, which it feels quaint uh, considering where it is today. But the 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 report you know 23 years ago concluded that baseball was headed towards financial ruin, which I mean at last check Jesse was (laughs) not exactly right. Like are we? Are, are, yeah, it, it, and it Mets and and everybody else, and it it looks bad. And you're right. Last season, with with the record dis, disparity, like discrepancy, there was a disparity. Uh, there that looked like an issue, but boy, people have been worrying about this for a long time, and it hasn't really come to pass yet. Yeah, I give the union credit. As I worked on this story, that was one of the first things they pointed out to me. Hey, Jesse, history repeats itself. Look at the rhetoric going back to 2000. And, and boy, if you study the Blue Ribbon Report written in 2000, it was about all this stuff, it seemed dire. There's no way this can continue. It's going to crater, meaning the sport, the economics are going to you know, just, just destroy it. Uh, the big markets will win every year. And the fact of the matter is it's not completely true, but there is truth to it. As I point out in the article, win totals for the top market teams have gone up uh, on average from 86 wins to 91 wins over the last five years. But then there, there, there's other things you could say um, about the postseason. You know, World Series winners, have it, it, there hasn't been a huge dynasty. Yeah, the Astros have won for a couple of the Giants back in 2010, but it's moved around. Um, then again, I'll go, I'll, I'll go to this point. There's been no central teams in the World Series since 2016 when the Cubs and Guardians uh, 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 made it because, of course, the Midwest teams are the smaller markets outside of Chicago, and so they can't compete with the coast as much. So that's why I say in there, over the last 23 years, since the last time they examined this, there's really mixed results when it comes to how much does payroll equate winning and championships and playoff appearances. It's mixed, but I do think there is evidence over time, of course, the higher payroll teams are going to win more. And certainly those teams don't ever have to take a step back like the smaller markets do. So I think that the system's a little uneven, but it doesn't mean it's, it's headed towards, um, you know, a destruction. No, it's not. And listen, the, 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 the billionaire owners of the small market teams could still spend more, right? Like it is, and especially if they were more interested in winning than, than making a profit, even if you took a year over year loss, we all know the equity in these baseball teams is going way up and, what they could sell them for now compared to what, what they, they bought them for um, hardly makes any of these teams a bad investment. Um, right now we have this thing called the Economic Reform Committee. The Major League Baseball has formed. Like, what, what, what kind of power? Like, what, what is its job? Like, how, how, what, what comes out of that? Yeah, they tried to downplay it to me, and I, I, I believe them when they say, first of all, this was formed last summer. It's not, it wasn't just because of the RSN deals falling apart. It was a, it was a whole bunch of things. Coming off the last labor agreement, they, they wanted a committee just like they have a rules committee, just like they have a labor committee. They feel like this is just another committee, and they're going to make suggestions to ownership. Um, it's comprised of owners, so I guess they're, they're going to make uh, suggestions to the commissioner. 
let's say, about this RSN situation, let's say, about payroll disparity. They don't have any real power, just like the Rules Committee doesn't have you know, power. They can just enact something without taking it up the chain of command, but they're going to examine these issues. Now, the, the union is thinking, wait a minute, they, they didn't have this committee before. It's, 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 it's formed under sort of false pretenses about this or that. It's really about keeping players' salaries down. I mean, the union is always on guard for the league wanting to institute a a cap, you know, and it can't happen until the next collective bargaining agreement. But as soon as the last one's signed, you're already thinking about the next one. So it's supposedly a committee that's going to inform them on all economic issues. The union thinks it's a committee to suppress salaries. But what, it doesn't matter. What, what matters is what can actually happen in, the, in, in, in terms of payrolls and salaries. What can actually happen is through, through collective bargaining. Uh, before I let you go, I guess, this is just a guess. But like, if you had to guess, do you think Rob Manfred and, and maybe the other 28 owners are pumping their fists that the, the Mets and Padres find themselves outside of the playoffs looking in right now? Well, I think Rob Manfred as, as a commissioner, yes. I think he is, yes. Um, I think the bigger thing is, they're, they're they're kind of pumping their fists as much at the at the Padres not being very good yeah. because the Padres are the team that really threw everything for a loop because it's one thing for Steve Cohn to spend money uh, they can say well the New York Mets bring in a lot of money it's New York it's a huge media market so while you know it makes sense but when the Padres want to have a payroll like that for a small media market that doesn't bring in a lot of revenues how bad does that look uh, for the other small market owners. So I think if the Padres end up losing and then they, uh, and then they subsequently lose a ton of money because let's say they don't have playoff games or less fans attend late in the year because they stink. That's when the ownership there might say, well, wait, we made a mistake. We're a small market team. We shouldn't have this kind of a payroll. And then they might drop down. So I, I think there's a reason, a few reasons he, he might be pumping his fist, but I think it's that one more than anything A small market team spending like that makes a lot of the other owners look bad, and nobody wants that in the league. Yeah, I mean, the fans should. Um, But, yeah, no, they they, yeah, it's uh, not working out uh, so far. Lots of season left to go, though, uh, in San Diego. Jesse, I really enjoyed the piece. Thanks for doing this. Anytime. Be well. You too. Jesse Rogers, ESPN MLB reporter. I love this story. I mean, hopefully it doesn't sound too dry to people. But like I said, this is narrative driving in sports, right? And I'm I'm trying to do it in the National Hockey League, talking about how the the, the teams that play in, in warm weather locales that are good, like have this huge advantage over Canadian franchise, which I believe. But you know what is an actual physical advantage that's undeniable is money. When the Mets are throwing four hundred million dollars at payroll, and it's twice as much as you can throw at payroll, or can't again. For the the sake of argument, can is in quotation marks here, okay? Because everybody can spend a lot more than they've spent. Because just about every single Major League Baseball franchise, if put on the open market today, would be what? Like 10x what their owners paid for it? But yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to have teams that are... I mean, the Yankees are the evil empire because, what? They won 27 championships? That's part of it. But because they outspend everybody, or used to. They still spend more than most. If we lose that, we lose something. Like, there's just, there's no denying that something would be lost if there was a salary cap. Yeah, and you would have, I guess, more parity. But look at Major League Baseball. There's, to me, honestly, the perfect amount of parity. 
where division winners cycle in year over year over year. Right now, it's only the Braves that are set up to be repeat division champions in Major League Baseball. Now, the, the teams that spend a lot are still up and around the top of their division, and like the Dodgers at this moment are what, tied for the AL West lead or the NL West lead? So those teams will always be in it. But the fact that these other teams have a hope, like that's all I'm looking for. If it's physically impossible, that stinks. I, I, I'm an F1 fan now, and in that I, I pay attention to what happens week to week. Um, yeah, I, I watched the Netflix series, and it's got me into F1, and I do sometimes wonder what that sport would be like if you're like, all right, everybody, we're all in the same car. Who's the best driver? Who's got the most skill? I can think about that in golf, too. It's like, why do we allow people to wear to, to use different clubs and use different balls but there's always going to be an inherent disadvantage right not everybody can tee off at the same time the weather changes throughout the day sports aren't like that i will say though that there is an extreme there because as i say i'm an f1 fan and i came in at like just the perfect time where f1 was experience it's experiencing its highest level of parity maybe in the history of the sport is kind of reverted back to form. That you tune in on a Sunday and the result feels predetermined that Max Verstappen and or Sergio Perez is going to win. The Red Bull is going to be celebrating with the checkered flag at the end of the day. And if it gets to that where it's like, hey, the Mets are rattling off their fourth World Series victory in five years, that would uh, really stink. But the results have not played out that way they really haven't hey the the astros are the closest thing we have to a dynasty the braves are always in and around it but they've only won one world series over the last you know two decades it, it just has not played out so the results are all you need right there's just no argument to be made that baseball is inherently unfair that you cannot win as a small market franchise just not true you got to spend uh wisely and maybe the Padres and Mets didn't exactly do that. All right, when we come back, hey, listen, I mentioned that South Florida is the place to be as a pro sports fan. Uh, we'll talk to Greg Cody of the Miami Herald coming up in uh, mere moments. Also, text line remains open, 590-590. We'll get to uh, some of your texts before the end of the program. It's the Fan Drive Time. I'm Ben Ennis. This is Sportsnet 590, The Fan. More Leafs, more Raptors, more Blue Jays. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Text line open at 590, 590. South Florida, the place to be. Although summer, a little sticky. But if you're into pro sports, certainly. Um, 
The Panthers are, are down one nothing to the Vegas Golden Knights after Vegas' uh, victory in Game 1 over the weekend. Game 2 goes tonight again, 8 o'clock on Sportsnet. But they look full value. I mean, who would discount them from winning the series? They lost first game of the Bruins series. Um, they're fully capable of coming back and uh, winning this cup final. And as are the Miami Heat, um, they even that series at one game apiece. They now have home court advantage against Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, and the Denver Nuggets with an insane fourth quarter performance yesterday. Let's talk to uh, Greg Cody of the Miami Herald. How's it going, Greg? Yeah, I'm doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Um, th this Heat team is just, I captured everybody's imagination. I mean, they're an eight seed, but they were also trailing in a play-in tournament game in the second half to the Chicago Bulls, and here they are on level terms with uh, Nikola Jokic and, and the Denver Nuggets. I mean, just uh, quite simply, I guess from like a, a pure fact perspective, that would be the most unlikely NBA champion of all time. I mean, do you agree with that assessment? You know, I, I haven't run the history lesson on that, but it it has it would have to rank up there. They would be they would be the first ever number eight seed to win it all. So for that reason alone, they would probably be the biggest surprise. And like you say, uh, they barely got through the play-in round. They after they lost the first play-in game to Atlanta, I wrote one of those columns that uh, you want to have back. I think the headline on it was "This team is spent. They're done." And then, and then they go on to, to get through the playoff and, and then beat Milwaukee, beat the Knicks, beat Boston, and, and here they are 1-1. So it's been a remarkable story, not only as an eight seed doing it, but how they're doing it with a handful of undrafted players who keep rising up at just the right moment uh, as happened uh, in game two. So it's been pretty remarkable. Yeah, and hitting a bunch of three-pointers, which, again, they did not do during the regular season. They were 27th in three-point shooting during the regular season. They've been the best in the playoffs. They what, shot like 50% from three yesterday. I go, is this just a team going on the heater of all heaters? Like, is there any sense to be made of, of the difference in, in statistical um, results that we've seen regular season, postseason for this team? It, it's been very strange. In, in, in the regular season, they were last in the league in scoring offense. They scored the fewest points in the league. Uh, I, I think they're the first finals team since the early days of the league, since like 1949 or the 1950s, to be in the finals with a negative points differential in the regular season. So it's it's been incredible what they've done. And the, the weird thing is they were a very good three-point shooting team the season before this one. Mm. I think that boop means that uh, we have to reconnect with Greg Cody. Yeah, I mean, it's true that the three-point shot is a high-variance shot and that, you know, even the best three-point shooters go through slumps. I mean, a season-long slump is is hard to figure. And maybe part of it is just that, like, guys like Duncan Robinson – find themselves falling out of the rotation during the regular season. I know they've been injured for a whole lot of time, but hey, Tyler Hero's still out, right? Like this is this is a team that had these players by and large available to them during the regular season, but for some reason once the games got more important, they've decided to hit all their shots. All right, we got Greg Cody back now. Yeah, we were just talking about the difference between the regular season and the postseason for this Heat team. Yeah, sorry about that. I got to make a mental note to pay my phone bill uh, next month. Um, it's they were a very good three-point shooting team a year ago. 
And then this year was sort of an aberration when they didn't shoot the threes well, and that's a big reason why they struggled so much in the regular season. And and now what they're doing in the playoffs is more what we were used to a year ago. And um, so, you know, not that they would shoot 50%, but that they're closer to last year's three-point shooting team than this year's is sort of back to normal for this team, I think. So you you can have like an 82-game dip then? Like, how do you explain that? that the, and that was not just like a, a couple weeks of games where they stunk shooting the three. Again, 27th in the NBA uh, in, in the 82-game large sample that is the regular season. Is, yep, is, that, right. is that heat culture then? Like, the, is that where the, the, that we indicate that that's happening? Listen, I can't explain basketball. I mean, how do you explain Max Struess going 0 for 10 in game one and in game two shooting three threes in a row to get them off to a big start? It, it just it, it doesn't make any sense what they're doing. Gabe Vincent uh, is, is the star of the game in game two, an undrafted guy. D- Duncan Robinson, who lost his uh, place in the rotation, for a lot of this season because he was doing so terribly is the spark in the fourth quarter who ultimately wins the game for them. So there are so many of those head scratchers going on with this team where you, you, you can't, you can't really rationally figure it out. It's just a team. It's a super blue collar team. You know, they don't have the, the, the Jokic level superstar, but you know, they're getting great play out of Bam Adebayo. Uh, and they're getting great play out of their unsung underdog-type undrafted guys. And Jimmy Butler has shot poorly in the first two games of this series, and, and yet they're 1-1 moving forward. And he's going to pick up his game, you suspect. So I think they're in pretty good shape heading back to Miami for a pair. Yeah, I would say. And, and yeah, you're right. It's, it's hard to figure, but let's do our best. Uh, and let's at least, like, go down the list. And, and I, I, sure. it's hard for me not to look at the head coach. Eric Spolstra being one of the best uh-huh. in, in, in the NBA. And again, this heat culture thing, but, but that you can go through as many starting lineups as he has and had, you know, rotations that are b- been blown up and then put back together going back to the, the, you know, how different the rotation in the postseason looks to the ones that he had multiple times throughout the course of the regular season, Kevin Love getting back in there in the starting lineup because yeah. Caleb Martin is dealing with some sort of sickness. Like, how much of, of this it lies at Eric Spolstra's feet? I think Spolstra is the best coach in the NBA. Um, there's, there's nowhere to quantify that, but he is in the six finals since 2006. Um, he just, like, starting Kevin Love. Uh, in, you know, Kevin Love hadn't even played the past few games, uh, hadn't gotten in the game. And, and to start him, because he said they needed more size, and, and his veteran experience, I mean, that pays off. He, he seems to push all the right buttons. And I would also remind that, you know, they're missing their second-best scorer in Tyler Hero mm-hmm. with a hand injury. He should be back fairly soon. I wouldn't be shocked if he played in either game three or game four. They're also missing Victor Oladipo, who had turned into a really valuable rotation guy, uh, offensive spark plug off the bench. So, they're missing two key players and, and still doing all this. You know, everybody everybody said Milwaukee was a better team even after they lost. They said the same, same thing about Boston. And if, if the Heat win the championship, they're going to say the same thing about Denver. Well, Denver was the better team. They had the better players. Somehow, Spolster always finds a way to get the most out of his team. And it's, it's 
pretty incredible to watch. Well, and, and that brings us to former Raptor Kyle Lowry, who's obviously fallen out of the starting lineup. Uh, he was pretty efficient in his 24 minutes yesterday, uh, two of four from the, the field, and uh, hit two of his three three-pointers for, for nine points. But this is a guy that's making almost yeah. 30 million bucks, and he's making almost 30 million bucks again next year. Obviously, like, the, the, the focal point of a lot of fan derision throughout the course of the regular season, but... What, what have you made of, of his acceptance of this role in the postseason? Yeah, he's become a, a real team player. You know, everybody <laughs> made fun of him for being overweight, for being out of shape, for being overpaid, wasted millions, get rid of him. Spolster loves the guy. You know, Spolster's in love with these veteran players who uh, are fine with being role players. Kevin Love is one. Lowry is certainly one. And, and Lowry, you know, has the ability to come off the bench and, and hit a three and, and, you know, just do things that, that are part of what we talk about when we say heat culture. It, it's a weird thing to define, and I'm sure the rest of the league is, is making fun of this obsession about heat culture, but it's, it's embodied in these undrafted guys rising up, and it's embodied in a guy like Kyle Lowry willing at his age to sort of, uh, agree to the role he's given and, and really em- embrace the role he's given as a mentor to some of these other guys and as a very willing player off the bench. Yeah, uh, and they also have playoff Jimmy, who, like you, you said, hasn't shot all that well the first two games of the series. I don't think anyone would discount uh, the possibility of Jimmy Butler reverting to playoff Jimmy uh, the rest of, of this NBA Finals uh, he hasn't won a title yet in his entire career, and, and he's made a finals as a, a member of the Heat in, in the bubble against the Lakers and somehow pushed that to, to six games against LeBron and AD. Where, where is his star in, in South Florida right now? It's, um, you know, notwithstanding a little bit of a lull, um, he, he's still playoff Jimmy down here. You know, nobody's going to be Dwayne Wade, but... I think Jimmy Butler has gotten to a point in just four seasons where when you think about clutch postseason performers in franchise history, you, you probably put Jimmy Butler on the top echelon along with Wade. Uh, so, so Butler's place is, is really cemented by the postseason he's had. He was averaging 30 points for a while. He's dipped a little bit lately, but it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if he comes back with a big – game three and, and has one of those 34 point type games because he's due and they need him. They need him to do that. They can't totally, you know, they can't rely on, on Bam being the offensive force he's been. And they can't rely on guys like Gabe Vincent and Caleb Martin to produce these 25, 28 point games all the time. They need Jimmy Butler. Uh, all right, so let's talk about the other South Florida team. They don't play in Miami proper in Sunrise. I've been there uh, back when it was the National Car Rental Center, which I don't believe it is anymore. Uh, uh, yeah, and there's, a, there's like a mall right next to it. I, I enjoyed my time. I think I saw the Leafs. Uh, and yeah, the tickets were cheap. Um, and, and I'm sure they are cheap relative to normal Stanley Cup final uh, tickets as they, they get set to, to host Game 3 of the Stanley Cup final later this week. Um how big a reception is is this this finals run like out of nowhere? You want to talk about an eight seed making an NBA finals? Same with the 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 Panthers who needed a a, a Pittsburgh Penguins loss to the Chicago Blackhawks in Game eighty one to even get into the playoffs. 
And then they played the, the best team in NHL regular season history and beat them in seven games. But, like, how much has that captured the attention of South Floridians? Yeah, it has. And, and, and here's the thing. This, Miami's a football town, first and foremost, Dolphins and Hurricanes. It's second a basketball town. And, and when the big three were down here with LeBron James, um, it sort of became one and one A, a football town and a basketball town. Hockey's never been close. Like, this has never been a, a hockey first city, as you can imagine, or region, I should say. But now uh, people are enraptured. And because of what you said, they're not just winning, but they're winning as a number eight seed after a very, very disappointing regular season. After big controversial changes, you know, they had a, they won the President's Trophy last year with a great regular season. Then they make a coaching change. Then they trade away arguably the most popular player in franchise history in Uberdo and get Matthew Kachuk, who has just been fabulous. Uh, he, in every way imaginable, he has been a, a great get for this uh, program down here. So, yeah, it's, this is never going to be a football town, but the Panthers have definitely gotten the attention of South Florida. That's for sure. Well, yeah. And Matthew Kachuk, like he's doing his best job to, to promote hockey. I would say just like in North America in general, but certainly in South Florida, he was on what people magazine. Uh, he's making the rounds yeah. media wise game. One wasn't so great for him uh, as he gets the misconduct at the end of the game. And then, you know, has the turnover, the results right. in the, the eventual game winning goal, but we know how good he can be. Um, how 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 much is he making inroads as far as yeah a, a local sporting celebrity in, in South Florida? Yeah, he he definitely is, and I think part of it is not to be a, a jingoist, but he's an American-born player with a great personality. Um, Uberdo, as good as he was, and and Barkoff, as good as he is, these are not uh, bright lights personality-wise. Um, Barbrowski is the worst quote in the locker room, even after a, a great wall of Bob game. He's a terrible quote. He's not the personality that they've always needed down here in a hockey star. Kachuk is. He's great. He's fun to deal with. He's personable. Uh, and he's a great player. So he's exactly what this franchise has needed uh, moving forward to really continue to sell this program, not just a, as a winner, because I think Paul Maurice and, and the GM Bill Zito have done a great job but as a team that can attract even even casual fans who barely uh, know which end of the stick hits the puck. Uh, 96 was a while ago, but, I mean, going on that incredible magical cup final run in, in year three of the Panthers' existence and then getting wiped out and forced right by the Avalanche, but, like, the Rats and, and uh, Patrick Waugh hiding in, in, in the net and all that, like, it, did that create a generation of, uh, albeit, like you said, not exactly top of the mountain when it comes to the uh, pro sports teams as far as the number of fans there are of hockey. But, like, is there was there a, a, a section of, of, of hockey fans created by that run, what, uh, you know, almost 30 years ago? Yeah, I think so. And, and, and I remember those days. I was, I was around back then. That's how old I am. Um, and, and I remember that. But, but the problem is they then had years and years of irrelevance down here. They didn't make – they made the playoffs the next year in 97 – they didn't make the playoffs again for like 15 years. And, and until a few years ago, they'd really not been a very good franchise at all. And so they lost a lot of that momentum, and they're gaining it back now in the past three seasons, I would say. Um, so, you know, if, if what we're feeling and seeing right now 
is a harbinger, then I think this has the potential to to definitely be the third biggest team in the market after the Dolphins and Heat. Uh, I think they can be bigger than the Marlins, and I think they can certainly be bigger than Inter-Miami soccer, although if they get Lionel Messi, uh, all bets are off. But, uh, yeah, the Panthers are in a good spot right now for sure. Yeah, they are, even though they're down uh, one nothing to the Vegas Golden Knights. Uh, Greg, uh, right. I, yeah, you are of the Miami Herald. You're also uh, the host of the Greg Cody podcast, uh, which comes out every Monday. We appreciate you uh, doing this, taking the time for us today. Thanks for this. Anytime. Thanks. There's Greg Cody of the Miami Herald. Um, yeah, good time to be a sports fan in South Florida. And... I mean, it's, it's, it's great just in an overall sense if you're a fan. Maybe not so great if you're like a hockey fan looking to get the, the, the most attention towards the hockey team as, yeah, the, the Heat are always going to play bigger there. And the fact that they won game two, it's hard not to look at that as being like a 10 times bigger story in that market than the Panthers. But it is weird how these things tend to happen in bunches when it comes to the momentum of a sporting city right now it's happening in miami and environs again sunrise not quite miami but it's uh pretty damn close all right mention the text line is open probably have time for uh one text let's go to uh producer mike gentilly and the text line how's it going mike it's going good it's going good a lot of text uh, saying how well the uh, show is produced so thank you to them that wow. was that's how can they tell that, that this, this show is being produced well. Is it the quality of guests, I uh, suppose? It was a great show. It's well-produced. Mike and Etobicoke. Thank I didn't you, Mike. swear. I didn't swear. Like, <laughs> is that your responsibility? I don't know where, where you come down on that. It might be made up, but, but more on the sports-related side. Okay, how about this one? Brian in Toronto. Lucas is on the 26-man roster doing nothing. Tapia has surprisingly been designated for assignment. If available, Ben, how about bringing him back? Uh, thanks to the uh, texter for sending that text. Um, I would say if you're at the bottom of a roster, if you're the 25th man or now the 26th man, you got to do a thing, right? You got to do something. You don't have to do everything, and it's unlikely that you do everything. If you did everything, you wouldn't be the 26th man on the roster. You'd be an everyday player. Rymel Tapia does a thing, and that's run real fast. What he doesn't do is the one thing that was the biggest point of emphasis for this Blue Jays team in the offseason, and either they will live to regret it or it will pay big dividends, and that's play defense. Like, at a high level, can he play center field? Absolutely. Like, I can play center field. Like, Kevin Biggio can play center field. He's a center fielder in that he has played it throughout the course of his career, but this is one of the, the big mistakes people make when they evaluate the defense of just like speedy guys like Rymel Tapia, that speed alone does not make you a good defender. And one thing we know about Nathan Lucas, well, we know that he has a good minor league track record of, of hitting and, you know, small sample. Haven't exactly seen it at the major league level, but he hasn't, he's barely getting an opportunity to play uh, in the major leagues. We know he can play good defense. We've seen it in spring training. We've heard the reports from the minor leagues. This guy can play a, a more than capable center field. And you look at all the advanced stats for Rymel Tapia, whether it was during his time in Toronto, whether it was during his time in Colorado, whether it's during his brief time this season in Boston with the Red Sox, defense hasn't been there. And like in the brief times that I've seen him make appearances for, for the Boston Red Sox, hasn't been there. 
Why hasn't it been there? I have no idea. Like, you would figure this guy would be working on his defense, especially as a guy who's like a fringe player. Man, if you have the skills, and God knows, like, he has the natural skills to be a good defender for whatever reason, does not read the ball off the bat as well as he should, considering the role he plays uh, in Major League Baseball. So honestly, despite the fact that we haven't seen Nathan Lucas, like, at all, essentially, and the Blue Jays have used the bottom of their roster super sparingly, like, like not at all. Although Kevin Biggio's found himself back in the good graces and, in fact, is back in the lineup again today, and I'll get to that in just a second. At least Nathan Lucas does the thing that this team has apparently committed itself to. And honestly, at least if you go by defensive run saves, they've been successful at. This team has defended very, very well. Among the league leaders in defensive run save, like some other defensive metrics aren't nearly as high on the Blue Jays. Outs above average is kind of like middle of the pack, but and we've seen the difference that Kevin Kiermeyer has made, obviously. Less so, I guess. Dalton Varsho, he's got his glove on a couple balls recently that he hasn't been able to haul in, but the defensive metrics still positive for him. And when you take a guy like George Springer who can capably play center field and you put him into a corner, obviously you're going to get a, a defensive boost there. So, yeah, no, I, I, I get it. Rymel Tapia is a known commodity. He had some moments. I mean, his most notable moment last season was against the team that he spent the first part of this season with, uh, Boston Red Sox. He hit a grand slam, Fenway Park, in that 30-run outburst against the uh, Boston Red Sox. So uh, thanks to the texture. I, I do not see it. I mean, I guess there's obviously a connection between the front office and his agent. Will they make a call, I guess? Like, is he willing to, to, to go to Buffalo, play in the International League for a couple of weeks, and await the possibility of getting called up to the Blue Jays? I suppose if he's open to that, um, yeah, I could see it. But as far as being activated and thrown directly onto the 26-man roster, they have a better defender. Nathan Lucas is a better defender in center field than Rymel Tapia. Not as fast, and maybe ultimately not even as good uh, offensively as Rymel Tapia, but defensively, Nathan Lucas is better, and the Blue Jays, in their acquisition of Kevin Kiermeyer and Dalton Varsho, has shown us that that's a super important thing to them. All right, uh, I mentioned the lineup. It is out as the Blue Jays start in a four-game series at Rogers Center against the Houston Astros. George Springer, DH Day which means Kevin Biggio back in the lineup. And they're stacking the lefties at the bottom of the order here. Um, as uh, Dalton Varsho is hitting fifth. No Brandon Belt today, naturally, with George Springer DHing, which is also a curious situation considering he had the biggest hit of the game yesterday, two-run home run to give the Blue Jays a victory and a series sweep over the New York Mets. But yeah, no Brandon Belt. Hard to question what the Blue Jays are doing as far as the load management for George Springer because he's stayed healthy this entire season. The Blue Jays have been the most healthy team in Major League Baseball. But yeah, might have been an, a thing to get Brandon Belt back-to-back uh, -back starts. Uh, George Springer, DH today. Matt Chapman, the cleanup man. Dalton Varsho hitting fifth with Merrifield second base. Alejandro Kirk back behind the dish. Catching Alec Manoa, Kevin Bijou in right field, and Kevin Kiermeyer in center field as the Blue Jays had a weird single series homestand, then had a weird single series road swing, and now 
have a more traditional homestand, starting with four against the Houston Astros tonight. Coming up next, it's Blair and Barker getting you set for Blue Jays baseball down at Rogers Center. I'm Ben Ennis. This has been the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.